Well, open your Bibles back to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We're in the middle of a study of this book of Ecclesiastes, which is Solomon in his, his trek, his pursuit after, after uh, pleasure. He conducts a series of experiments on pleasures. He applies his wisdom to these experiments. And he uh, really does the math and the calculus to say, what do these equal? And his, his answer for all of them is that they equal vanity. They're steam off a cup of coffee. They're there for a moment. They're a vapor that's there and gone. The last uh, study, we looked at Solomon's experiment with alcohol, with drinking. Specifically, he says, I, I stimulated my mind with alcohol. He was pursuing a level of drunkenness, a level of intoxication to see if there was any value in pursuing drunkenness. His conclusion, as with all of his pursuits, was that it was vanity. It was there for a moment and it was gone. And I think we established pretty, um, pretty clearly from God's word uh, that uh, the, the corollary to that is that drunkenness in any degree is, is wrong. Uh, the pursuit of drunkenness is not uh, honored by Scripture with a, a rare exception that we'll talk about in a moment. Um, and it's not something that is supposed to be pursued, enjoyed. Uh, drunkenness is wrong. Do not be drunk with wine, Paul told the Ephesians. Very clear. And we laid out some very biblical reasons to understand why that was wrong, out of bounds, clearly a sin. But it's impossible to do that and to talk about that without also turning to say, well, let's look at the wisdom of alcohol and drinking and consumption of alcohol at all, especially in our culture. I've entitled tonight, Wisdom and Alcohol, A Rare Combination. I thought long and hard about how we would frame up this study, and that was the best I could come up with. It is a rare combination. Uh, it's something that I have seen abused and misused. It's something that I've seen applied very wisely and skillfully. In Ecclesiastes 2 here, Solomon attempted drunkenness and intoxication and said it's vanity. The scripture tells us that drunkenness is something that is forbidden. It's very clear and we outlined that and looked at that, I think, uh, uh, without much debate uh, in our last study. But that brings up the issue about Drinking alcohol in general. Now, when you look at this issue, we got to back up a little bit and, and understand the application of Scripture. The goal of understanding the Bible is to do something with it, to worship with it, to understand God better, to understand life better. And there are two broad categories of application or implications that we get from Scripture. First is the application of imperatives. And the second is the application of wisdom. Let me explain. The application of, of uh, imperatives. Thou shalt not steal. Anything ambiguous about that? Anything up for debate about that? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Any questions? No hands uh, go up and say yes, but however, it's pretty clear. Uh, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt all the way through. Those are imperatives. They're commands that God has given um, uh, we could go on and on. The book of James has more imperatives than any other book in, in the New Testament. Uh, you know, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Not a lot to, to understand beyond uh, taking that to the fourth grade Sunday school class and they can understand it. The imperatives are very, very clear. Don't lie, don't fornicate, do not get drunk, very clear. 
But the application of wisdom is another category in which we have to let the Bible inform our decisions in wisdom, even though they're not black and white. These are in the gray areas. For example, do you think the Bible gives any insight into who a person should marry? Well, I hope so. Well, there are a lot of parameters that are given about who to, who to marry, but it doesn't say that girl, even though I know a lot of guys who've tried to tell a woman, I think it's God's will that you marry me, and that didn't work out so well. Where to go to school? Where to go to college? Is there book, chapter, and verse for going to this college, going to that college? No. What job to work? What to do on your day off? But all of those issues are very biblical. There are biblical principles that inform how to make those decisions, even though they're not black and white. All biblical issues, but they're issues informed by wisdom, not by imperative. Which means there's some fuzzy area in there. It's, uh, it's not always exactly the same. How can you say that? Well, uh, it, would it be uh, wise for two guys to both say they wanted to marry the same woman? No. That's not, not why. There, there are some black and whites even in the wisdom application. Well, backing up a little bit, uh, Solomon's making these, um, these judgments, these experiments. He's looking at life and saying, what does it have to offer? And uh, he tried drunkenness, but he also did try just merriment, tried fun, tried um, what the world could offer him in terms of amusement and, and enjoyment. And in all these categories, he said, this is, this is important, there is some value in that which I'm pursuing but that value runs out when the pursuit crosses over the line into sin. Solomon's an amazing man. He, he could have had anything he wanted. He had all the money. He was the richest man in the world. He had unhindered power. He could do anything he wanted. And his conclusion after these experiments was that it's vanity. Everything pursued for lasting pleasure outside of God will be dissatisfying. That a person who loves Christ should not get drunk is a no-brainer. But the discussion about alcohol raises that there are other questions that we have to ask as well. Uh, what I want us to talk about tonight is um, what's been called social drinking, enjoyment drinking, uh, pleasure drinking, you, you name it. Drinking that's less than getting drunk. So I want to be careful again. We're talking, we're not talking about getting drunk. And as I said last week, um, even talking to uh, some physicians in here, the, the, what is the current um, uh, legal limit for alcohol blood level? 0.08, does that sound right? But that, that does different things to different people who can quote unquote hold their liquor, I think is the, is the slang. It's, it, that's an arbitrary um, uh, assessment. You can go a little higher, a little lower, and it has different effects on people. All to say, drunkenness is not a precise science. Some people can get more tipsy, can we call it, or less uh, in control with less than others can. It's just a metabolic reality. Some people process alcohol in your blood, through your liver, differently than others. What about, though, drinking in, in ways and in areas that, that you don't get drunk? Can I give you an interesting footnote? Had a great discussion with a friend of mine who uh, was, uh, he wasn't trying to make any point. He was just saying, what, what is a biblical response to this legalization of marijuana? It's a good question. What is a biblical response? Well, 
we were kind of talking out loud, and there's a substantive difference in, in um, uh, drinking socially versus smoking marijuana. How do you know that? How, do you, how can you d- distinguish that? Well, there's a difference between having an, a liquid that goes with a meal, less leading to drunkenness, when the only reason someone smokes pot is to get high. The only reason to do that is to get intoxicated. So there's a whole different string of, of, uh, of events that lead to the pursuit of those. Uh, you could say the same thing about um, uh, addiction to painkillers. We could go on and on. Specifically tonight, though, I want to keep us in the ballpark of looking at drinking. Um, let me just tell you from the beginning, I, I am a teetotaler. I don't drink alcohol. Uh, I, I have been known to sip on NyQuil. I got to admit that. Um, I, I am a teetotaler. Uh, I, I, that was a decision I made a long time ago. I don't drink alcohol anytime ever if I can help it. I've told you before there was one uh, um, uh, situation in Italy a few years ago in which it was going to be a very uncomfortable situation. If I didn't, I was an honored guest. Someone uh, uh, there had bought a very expensive bottle of wine and was going to um, honor me at this meal with that. And, and I asked my friend, I said, look, is, it, is, is this going to be a problem if I don't do this? Uh, because if it is, I would have done it in a heartbeat. I'm, I'm not a weaker brother. It would have been okay. I wouldn't have gotten drunk. Um, and he said, oh, and he talked to his friend. Oh, no, more for us. It was fine. So... <laughs> Uh, I, was, I got out of that okay, but I, I'm not a legalist. I hope that you'll understand I'm a teetotaler, but I'm not a legalist. I don't think anyone has ever been saved by ceasing to drink alcohol. I don't think anyone who has had a glass of wine with their, their meal or um, a, a can of beer watching a football game is going to hell because of that. Now, if they're not saved, I can't help you with the alcohol problem. I will tell you this though, my abstinence has never one time caused me a difficult conversation, never. It's caused me to be looked at weirdly, it's caused me to be looked at oddly, uh, but it's never been an issue. Every person that I know who, as a believer, decides to do this has had to answer questions. It's just a reality. It's a fact of life. It doesn't mean it's right or wrong. I just want to get it out there that that is a reality. Discussions I get into with this uh, issue almost always default to two extremes when you have two less mature people talking, and it's about spiritual maturity. I've had uh, someone actually tell me that if you're really spiritually mature, I had a gentleman in seminary tell me this one time, not our seminary. He said, real spiritual maturity demonstrates the ability to handle any and every liberty. So your responsibility as a pastor is to drink responsibly so that people can see how responsible drinking looks. That's a nice try, but that was a swing and a miss. I don't think that's my primary or a mandate for me biblically. I'm also, I'm not an expert on, on wine, beer, um, um, Things I can't pronounce, things from Russia, things from Kentucky. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not an expert on it. I don't purport to be. My wife and I were um, married just a few months, and uh, she knows I love Italian food, and so she got an Italian cookbook, and she was so excited. I have permission to tell the story. Um, she was so excited because she was going to make me a, a, this, this wonderful Italian meal, and I, I was excited about it. I came home that night, and I said, 
I didn't smell Italian. And uh, I said, what happened? She said, well, I couldn't find all the ingredients. I said, really? She said, yeah, I found everything except, except dry wine that was supposed to go in the sauce. And I said, honey, in California, there's like a whole liquor store as you walk into the grocery store. And I said, honey, I mean, it's right there as you walk through. She says, what? She says, oh, dry wine. I thought it was like in the spice section. It was dry. So I don't purport to be any kind of expert on this. But we need to get a proper uh, biblical perspective. I want to make a couple of preliminary notes before we dive into this. Uh, First of all, wine, these are just preliminary. Wine is actually commended in the Bible for some specific reasons. It's specifically commended in the Bible. For example, in Exodus 29.40 and in Leviticus 23.13, the people were told to bring drink offerings, alcoholic drink offerings of wine to the temple for God. According to 1 Chronicles 9.29, it's very likely that a whole supply of wine was kept in the temple for these drink offerings. Judges 9, 13, Psalm 104, verse 15, mentioned that a special wine uh, can cheer and make one happy. I don't think that's talking about intoxication. I think, I think it's just talking about the experience. Isaiah 24, 9 says, the drinking of wine was accompanied with singing good songs. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2, wine is equated with a salvation. Come and buy wine, the Lord says. It's an invitation to being saved. John 13, the Lord drank wine and ordained the Lord's Supper. Uh, I, I, I don't believe some of my, uh, my hardcore uh, Baptist friends that I grew up with that Jesus made grape juice. He didn't, the, 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 he, when he turned the water into wine, it was grape juice, it wasn't alcoholic. Nor do I believe that at the Last Supper, he only used grape juice and not wine. It says wine, and I take that as wine. In 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul told Timothy to take some wine medicinally. Take wine for your stomach, he said. In Luke 10.34, when the good Samaritan um, finds the man on the road, he fixes him up and he pours wine on his wounds. It was an antiseptic. It had alcohol in it. And in Proverbs 31, verses 6 and 7, it says that when somebody gets old and is sick and is dying, give them wine as a sedative to ease the pain. That is an issue where God says a level of intoxication for pain a cessation when a person is about to die is, is gracious, is kind. Jesus actually made wine in John 3. And you know what? He didn't just make any old wine. He made really good wine. Remember the, the, the head waiter came out and said, wait a minute, this is, this is not the cheap stuff. So when the Lord turned inert water into carbon bonds in uh, creating life. It's interesting what he did. He created something that was inert into life, having carbon bonds of of the grape juice. He created very good wine. So we have to be clear that the Bible doesn't just say wine equals bad. A second observation, the wine of the Bible was not exactly the same as ours today. Now, I want to be careful here because I'm not trying to justify that it was a substantially different except to say that the Bible classifies different levels of, of um, alcoholic content. Oinos and yayin, it was, it was the, uh, just juice, not necessarily fermented. Uh, glucose and, and uh, tirash is new wine, fresh but still 
uh, fermented. Uh, shakar, strong drink. And the strong drink was typically not a, um, uh, a beverage. The strong drink was a highly fermented paste that they would then mix with water, which you could do at different concentrations, which would give you the, the, the harder liquor, something that would get you drunk very fast. Woe to those who linger long, Isaiah 5, over strong drink, who are champions of drinking strong drink in the morning, uh, Isaiah says. Now, we could go into all of the uh, alcoholic percentages between now and, and then. I don't think that's helpful, uh, except to say that they had some wine that was just to be drunk with meals and some wine that was almost exclusively drunk. It's called strong drink in order to get drunk. Let me give you a third observation here, just preliminarily. The Bible does not say, do not drink, except in one condition. If you are under 21, the Bible says, do not drink. You know why? It's against the law. So if someone under 21 says, hey, I, wanna, I want to uh, buy uh, something and drink it, it's pretty clear that that's not permissible. So where does this leave us? Where does this leave us? Well, I've, I've thought long and hard about some principles to, to decide if social drinking is a privilege or a problem, if it's a wise decision or not. I just wanna lay out some principles. Let me just tell you at the very beginning where we're gonna end, okay? Um, the Bible doesn't say that if you drink, that you've sinned. Is that clear? If you drink anything alcoholic, you've sinned. The Bible does say if you cross the line over into drunkenness or influence of your mind, you have. Where that line is, I, I can't determine for you. Let's see what the Bible has to say. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians 8. 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 talk about this, this category of decision that we call liberties. These decisions that we make that are, are gray areas. Said another way, for some people, drinking is not a sin. For others, it is a sin. And that will make more sense as we dive into this passage. By the way, when we get to Romans 14, we're going to look at this in far greater detail because it talks about these same issues again. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Here's our first principle to decide whether it's wise or not for you to partake, okay? Number one, insight is not the only sight. Insight is not the only sight, meaning what you know about it not being wrong to, to simply drink is not the only thing you need to know. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols. Stop right there. This was an, an issue that, was, that some Christians could do without sinning. And some Christians would sin by doing. It's very clear. And, and lest we think, well, this was just for a time, a long time ago. I have been to places in Africa where this is still exactly applicable. It wasn't like God uh, wrote the Bible for, for that generation uh, that was alive at the time and just said, well, we'll work things out when we get into the 20 and 21st century. Now, this is still applicable in areas. But the idea of something that you're doing that um, has no intrinsic evil in and of itself, partaking of that, meat sacrificed to idols, drinking of something that has uh, alcoholic content, um, is right for some people and wrong for others. That's exactly what he's talking about here. We know that we have all knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. What he's saying, as he'll explain here, is we know that there's no such thing as an idol. I mean, it's silly. 
it's absolutely silly to say, well, I can't eat this meat because it's, it's, it's offered to an idol when we know that idols don't exist. Love, however, builds up the people around you who actually might believe that. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. In other words, if, if you think that you've got it figured out and you're arrogant about your liberty, be careful. But if anyone, anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there are no such things, no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. So, what he's saying is... There are some people who struggle with this and your love for them has to factor into the equation. You say, yeah, but they're wrong. He knows that. He said that. Which leads to number two. Conscience is the issue, but not yours. Conscience is the issue, but not your conscience. He goes on in verses um, 7 to 13 to describe this. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Their conscience is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We ne- neither are the worse if we eat it or do not eat it, or the better if we, we do eat it. Here's the verse, verse 9 is key. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. There's the principle. For if someone sees you who have knowledge, you know that the idol isn't really real, dining in an idol's temple, uh, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. That's such... Such an exclamation point. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Conscience is the issue, but not yours. Now let's be careful here. He's talking about a weaker brother. How do you define a weaker brother? This is where we get to some tricky uh, uh, eisegesis and, and um, uh, guesswork. Some people say, well, I don't like drinking and, and my uncle or my parents were alcoholics or, and they give all these excuses to say, because of that, I don't think you should drink. That's not a weaker brother. That, that's, uh, that's preferential arrogance. Here's what a weaker brother is. Let me, let me describe Paul's principles in the, in the alcohol context. It would be like this. It's okay for you to drink socially without getting drunk. Someone sees your example and then drinks themselves. After they drink, their conscience is violated because deep down they saw, thought this is a problem with this. Now you have sinned by allowing someone to do something that will violate their conscience. So let's, that's the clear uh, application of the weaker brother. A weaker brother is not someone who just doesn't like drinking. That's, that's not a fair comparison. It's, used, it's influencing someone to do something that will end up violating their conscience. That's the issue at stake here. 
Number three, ministry is more important than pleasure. Ministry is more important than pleasure. I won't go into all this, but beginning in verse uh, 19 of 1 Corinthians 9, just across the page there, he says, I'm free from all men, uh, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win the more. And he talks about the Jews and the Gentiles. And basically he's saying this, if it becomes an issue, I can give it up. Can I be a little bit graphic with you for a minute? It is liquid you are going to consume and very soon afterwards eliminate. Paul is saying, why are you making this a big deal? It's a steak. I'll have chicken. In our context, it's a beer. I'll have a Pepsi. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Why? He's saying my ministry is so important. I don't want to do anything that could possibly, even if wrongly, even if wrongly, that could possibly threaten my credibility. You say, well, that's kind of bowing your, your knee to others, isn't it? Yeah, it's called Christian service. It's what we're called to do in every category. Number four kind of in the same vein, abusing your liberty can disqualify you for spiritual service. You know that passage that we often quote down at the end of chapter nine? Do you not know that those who run in a race run all run, but only one receives a prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They they then, excuse me, they then do it uh, to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. He's not talking about salvation. This is the end argument for his discussion on Christian liberty. He's saying, I'm gonna have self-control. I'm not gonna box with a name. I'm gonna be deliberate. I'm gonna bo- make my, my body my slave. My, my taste buds are not the thing that I'll bow my knee to. Now, just a footnote here. Um, I have to say this. You, you need to recognize, I think you understand this. You, you must recognize that this is not um, a universal understanding or argument that goes cross-culturally, Right? Um, we would be having a different discussion if we lived in Italy. We live in Kansas, or Kansas City, I gotta say, for our Missouri fans, friends. Um, This would not be the same discussion if you lived in Germany. One of the most profitable uh, pastoral meetings I've ever been in with a group of pastors who I love and respect so much in Germany, everybody at the table had a big stein of lager except me. Uh, No one got drunk and... Hey, good for them. We would be having different discussions. We have to recognize where we live. Also, every church has a culture. There are churches where where, uh, the drinking of wine is uh, enjoyed and celebrated. That's great. That's not the history of our our church or our culture. And changing the the culture of our church uh, with regard to drinking, can I be honest with you, is not in my top 100 priorities as your pastor I got to get to about 99 things before we touch that one. I will tell you this though. There's a higher standard for kings and princes. And the standard in the Old Testament is abstinence. 
Proverbs 31, 6 talks about that strong drink, that unmixed wine. It was given only to people who were perishing and um, uh, needed a sedative for their pain. And yet leadership was to abstain in Proverbs 31, 4 and 5 from strong drink. There's a higher standard for those taking a Nazarite vow. In number 6, no alcohol at all. Does that mean that a pastor or an elder uh, must, can never consume alcohol? That's not what the Bible says. What the Bible says is to be careful about our influence. You say, hang on, you're avoiding the question. No, I'm answering the question. We want to say what the Bible says, all the Bible says, and no more than what the Bible says. Here's the question. What if no one sees me? What if it's just in my house? What if it's just in my room? What if, it's, what if no one sees me? I, 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 I don't know. I don't, I don't really care. I will tell you this, though. That doesn't work for me. I am asked as, as, as a pastor. I didn't, this wasn't a part of my application process. But as a pastor, I am asked probably monthly now. When I was a college pastor, I was asked weekly or multiple times in a week, hey, what, do you drink? It was so easy to say iced tea, diet Pepsi until they came with Coke Zero. No, no, I don't. And then the discussion was over. It was, was not a big deal. We'll talk about that in a moment. The issue is for spiritual leadership, you have to be very careful with that, that can, because the weaker brother more often follows the one in perceived spiritual leadership than just anyone sitting in the pew. 1 Peter 5 says we're to be examples, and examples of what? Number five, your nature, <laughs> you're not gonna like this. I don't like this. Your nature is to lie to yourself about what you can handle. Your nature is to lie to yourself about what you can handle. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, still in the same discussion, verse 12. Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall, Right? Very dangerous words are when you say, hey, I can handle it. Hey, I can handle it. But that's the wrong question. Well, you probably can. Just because, well, let's go to number six. It follows on the tail of that. Number six, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Just because it's permissible doesn't mean it's a mandate. I've been told that before. Well, you should do it because you can do it. Look down at verses 23 and 24. All things, Paul says, are lawful to me. I can enjoy any of these liberties short of sinning. But not all things are profitable. See the difference? There's a difference between can and should. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, rather that of his neighbor. Now we find another principle. Again, we're looking at what what does this do to the people around me? And let me say again, it may do something different in the Midwest than it does in the Northeast, the Northwest, or in Germany, or in Italy. Let's stay in 1 Corinthians 10, number 7. God's fame and God's glory are at stake in how you handle your liberty. We often look at 1 Corinthians 10, 31 in isolation as a standalone verse. It's not. 
1 Corinthians 10, 31 is the final statement that Paul gives about, uh, the final principle he gives rather, about this issue of being, uh, of taking advantage of and enjoying your liberties. He says, whether then you eat, interesting, he says, or drink, nutrition, hydration, solid food, liquid, no matter what it is, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to either Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so they may be saved. In other words, I'm not gonna let anything influence my influence. I'm not gonna let anything diminish my credibility. We'll come back to that. Number eight. I think this is the last in our little list. Number eight. Believers are to live lives that do not provoke unnecessary questions. Believers are to live lives that do not provoke unnecessary questions. And I get this from Philippians chapter two, which says we're to be children of lights uh, above reproach in a crooked and perverse generation. What he's saying is as those who, of us who are living as, as Christians in an unbelieving world, we're to be lights in the darkness. We're to live substantively different kinds of lives. For me, that has something to do with, with the consumption of alcohol because it's so prevalent in our culture. I like being in an unbelieving context and people say, why, why aren't you drinking? And I don't ever say, because I'm a Christian. I say, why, why are you? We're gonna get to why the, that reason is here in just a moment. It all comes down to this. We have to ask some questions. How does drinking affect me, Right? If it's, if it's, if it's uh, influencing your, your, um, uh, your mind or your thinking, that's crossed the line into intoxication. How does it affect me? Secondly, how does it affect others? How does it affect Christians? How does it affect unbelievers? So let's back way up. Let me say some things because I... I, I have an email account and I know it will likely light up this week, all right? Let me, let's go through some yes or no scenarios. Is it wrong in and of itself to drink liquid that is alcoholic? Answer, according to the Bible, no. It's commended in, in many places for different reasons. So please don't send me the email that says, you know, you said that a Christian should never drink. I didn't say that. I didn't say, write it down, please. I didn't say that. Secondly, everything we do has to be supported internally with whether or not it squares with our approach to the glory of God. Does drinking a a glass of wine with your your, uh, steak or your fish, I I don't know. I, I can't answer that for you. I can tell you if someone follows your influence and sins against conscience, you're in trouble with God. That's a problem. Meaning we always have to be aware of the consciences around us. Now, if, if that's troublesome to you, welcome to the pursuit of spiritual maturity. Everything about that is troublesome to me, right? You're always dying to self Does it mean, this is kind of a weird thing to say, does it mean that because my pastor, Pastor Rick, doesn't drink, that that's the only standard? No. Please, use the Bible as your standard. 
don't use me, we'll all be in trouble. Please, you have to make the decision. Now, this makes some people very uncomfortable because they want to be told from the Bible, yes, you can or no, you can't. It's not that simple. There are questions that have to be answered to support that. But let me just tell you my thinking. Here's my final analysis in this, uh, in this um, kind of debate that I've gone through internally. Let's take you through some syllogisms. Is it sin to be drunk? Unless you're dying, then sedate me, okay? Uh, there's a grace given, literally, if, if it's morphine, if it's dilated, whatever it is, that's, that's, those are good things, there's a context for that. When I had kidney stones, dilated was a sweet nectar of, of God, I'm telling you, it was, a, it was a gift of God. There's a place for that, but in large, to drink, to get drunk for the enjoyment of that is sin. Is that, is that fair? Is there anyone who can disagree with that? Well, since drinking for drunkenness is out of the question, I think that the only thing you're left with as a reason for drinking is taste. It's all you're left with, right? It tastes good. I enjoy it. Therefore, I want to consume it. Is that wrong in and of itself? I don't think so. The Bible doesn't say it is. But for me, now let me just be personal for a second. For me personally, there are so many questions in our culture about drinking and alcohol, I can't think of any food or any beverage, alcoholic or not, that is worth, that tastes so good, it's worth me having to answer a bunch of questions about why I took it into my body and eliminated it an hour later. I just, I don't get the argument. Can you? Yes. Should you? That's between you and the Lord. But I don't get the argument that it tastes so good, it's worth the hassle. If that's you, that's between you and the Lord. And uh, there, we, uh, we will not church discipline people for having red or dry or white or Japanese rice wine with, with your meal. What's that called? How do you know that? Sake, sake. I don't know and I don't care. Let's go back to the very beginning because I have left so many questions unanswered on purpose. Because some people want really bad for the Bible to say, if you ever drink, you're in sin. Stop drinking, period. Which is a difficulty because you, you do know that the second you pick a grape, it actually starts the fermentation process. Ever so slightly, but it starts. And even Welch's has some little degree of things that are happening chemically. So where, where do you stop? That's not where we're going to go. This is between you and the Lord, and it's an issue of Wisdom. I've already told you my prayer. I, I don't drink. I can't find any good reason for me to drink except that it, it would taste uh, good and it would cause me so many questions. I mean, just honestly, let's just say that you, you uh, follow me down to uh, my favorite uh, barbecue place, which has been changing lately, but that's for another time. Um, and you see me with a, a, a big, I'm there uh, and you, you walk by your pastor and you have some friends with you and you see me and I got a, a big open container there of uh, big beer. Some of you would say, hey, great, welcome to the club. My suspicion is most of you would say, oh my. Why would you say that? 
Why would you say that? Why would that be a problem? By the way, you're not going to find me doing that. But for argument's sake, what internally, what, what dials are clicking? What's going on that would make you say, ooh. Now, some people it wouldn't. But for most of you, I can see on your faces, you would go, yeah, I don't want to walk into to Jack Stack and see, you know, Rick, you know, with, that would be weird. Why? Why? Footnote to the footnote to the footnote to the footnote. If we're in Italy, if we're in Germany, you would think it odd if that weren't happening. It's, it's culturally contained and culturally refined. Not defined, but refined in its application. Back to the very beginning. Two categories of uh, biblical application. Imperatives and wisdom. So all I'm asking you to do in looking at whether or not you should let um, alcohol uh, be persistent in your pursuits or in your house is can you explain it with biblical categories of wisdom? Is that fair enough? And if you can, then I would say be wise in the application. Um, I do find it very interesting. I don't know very many people who feel this way who are happy to drink anywhere, anytime in front of anyone. There's even a degree of application of wisdom in, these, in uh, my friends who, who partake as well. I, I think it's just important to be wise. But remember this. The only reason that you can really biblically justify the consumption of alcohol is because you like the taste. If you say, well, it's, it's to get along because all my friends enjoy it. Well, that's called pride. Well, it's, it's just to relax. That's called intoxication. Well, it's because this meat tastes better with this Beverage, that's called finicky. I don't know. That's uh, uh, I would tell you this. Having uh, this is just a little family time, a little pastoral moment with you, if I can. I do find it interesting that Isaiah five is very clear about those who brag about their alcohol consumption. Can I just encourage you? If this is something you do. Uh, Pounding your, uh, that on Facebook and Twitter and InstaFace or whatever there else, else there is there. <laughs> Graham, I got it. Why? Why? The, the narcissism of, of Twitter and Instagram is a whole nother another issue but why, why would, if, if something you know could cause issues with someone who's possibly weaker and you're, you're putting that out there with people you don't even know who are reading it and being influenced by it, that by definition puts you in a position of influencing a weaker brother so if you're going to do this let me go back to the very beginning you need to do it with wisdom with maturity so is it wise to drink socially? That's between you and Jesus. I can tell you, for me, it's not wise. I can't find a good reason. Have a Pepsi. Have a Coke Zero. It's just not, it's, it's, a, it's liquid. It's, it's liquid. I, I don't understand the argument that people want to make this their, their great enjoyment in life. If that's something you're going to pursue, though, there are biblical categories 
of wisdom that should be, must be, best be, must be applied so that you don't go over the line of losing your influence or causing someone to, to sin unwittingly. You say, what does that mean? They participate and their conscience is violated. I keep going back to that because I, I'm, I'm weary of these people who have a preference against it and then they call themselves weaker brothers. Who wants to be a weaker brother anyway? Well, you can't do that because I'm a weaker brother. That's not your best signature. (laughs) I'm a weaker brother. Don't drink around me. Well, you know, there are other issues we need to talk about then. It's it's an interesting thing when I've been in different cultures and even, even here in the States, even here in Kansas City when I've been at a meal with somebody and they say, hey, do you mind if I have a beer or a drink? My answer is, I don't mind, but just please keep it on your side of the table because I don't want to cause any questions with me. But I'm not a wicker brother. I'm not going to go drink because you are. So whoever understands that you participate in this liberty, you better have very strict controls over that relationship so that you understand how that plays out. Whether it's alcohol or meat offered to an idol in South Africa. You are your brother's keeper. Cain asked that. I think he was expecting the answer to be, no, you're not. You know what God's answer was? Actually, you are. Get to look out for each other. Where does it all end? Um, are alcohol and uh, uh, wisdom uh, cohabitable? Sure. Absolutely. How does that work out? That's between you and the Lord. Is abstinence problematic? It can be. I have seen people who are arrogant about their abstinence, about being teetotalers, and they think that is their moniker of spiritual maturity. Well, well, no, it's not. It's not at all. But let's be clear. The only reason I think you can land on biblically to consume alcoholic beverages is because you like the taste short of intoxication. If you have another reason, let me know. And don't say, well, when I'm gonna die, we've already covered that in Proverbs 31, okay? Sedation is also. Bottom line, follow the imperatives and you're always gonna be working on the application of wisdom your whole life. End note, not footnote. I've already used that too many times. Um, Please understand that I personally don't take any pride in being a, a teetotaler. It's really not a big deal. I like Coke Zero. Um, it's, it's liquid that you're going to eliminate. Why do we make such a big deal on either side of this? Be careful, no matter where you land that you don't become judgmental and cross another line of sin in placing judgments on someone that are unbiblical. Is that fair? Well, that has probably solicited many questions and uh, uh, we can talk about those. And I'm, I'm serious, you can email, we can, we can chat about those things. But in the end, whether or not you drink is an issue between you and the Lord, but be wise about your decision. Either way, is that fair? Father, give us wisdom that can only come from above. Please give us wisdom that is true.
traceable to your word. Make us aware of the consciences of others. Make us aware of our influence. Make us aware of our arrogance, no matter what side we drop on, that we could possibly cross the line with you because of a stance that's irrelevant because we've sinned with our attitude. Thank you for the imperatives of your word that are so clear. And thank you for the principles of your word that inform our decisions of wisdom. I'm grateful for this body. Lord, there are people who will enjoy um, alcoholic beverages who uh, are in our, our building who could be judgmental or judged. Please, please give us maturity not to do either. There are people who are abstainers who will judge or be judged. Give us spiritual maturity to interact, not to, to let our preferences trump your principles. Thank you for your word that is far more clear than most people give it credit for. Cause us to be guided by it, shaped by it, informed by it in such a way that in gray areas we can follow the leading of your spirit with wisdom and being above reproach, children of light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom we represent you. Lord, if, I want to ask your special application of your... The, the Spirit of God to all of our hearts that if I have gone too far or not far enough in any of these principles that he would give us guidance. Thank you for this precious church. Please don't let anything like this be something that's divisive. I pray this because we have access to you. Through Jesus, amen.